Good evening, this is Doug Taylor and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. Uh, it is Sunday, May the 30th, and we're going to start in a moment on Proverbs chapter 13, verse 23, uh, but the first thing I want to cover is a question that was raised, and that is, what do we do about Proverbs verses that appear to contradict each other? And the answer there is that sometimes if you read the words uh, on the surface, it sounds like uh, two verses may say uh, things that seem contradictory. But what we have to then do is look at the context of what is being said, what's uh, the context of uh, the verse, and what the particular verse is focused in on. And oftentimes I think what we'll discover is that while the words appear to be the same, the context is different, and so the verse is actually telling us something about one aspect of a thing in one verse and another aspect of that thing in another verse, or what you might do in one situation versus another situation. So when we see two verses that appear to immediately contradict, then we have to stop and say, okay, What's the specific aspect of that thing that the verse is talking about? And what's the aspect of the other verse? And find out, are we really talking about some subdivision of the thing that appears to uh, contradict it? And Naomi, if, you can, uh, if you're able to come up with some examples of those, uh, certainly be glad to tackle those in this class. Okay, does that answer your question? Okay, good, thanks. So we're going to start tonight in uh, Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 23. And the verse reads, Many eat the plowing of the poor, and there are that are destroyed without justice. Many eat the plowing of the poor, and there are that are destroyed without justice. So, as we always do, let me pause here and ask if there are any questions that come to mind when you look at that verse. Many eat the plowing of the poor, and there are that are destroyed without justice. So let me offer... Uh, some suggestions. And, and Eva, you've just written in uh, Injustice in the World. Um, good question. Uh, the verse seems to be talking about justice. And uh, we could ask, you know, it says many eat the plowing of the poor. Well, why don't the poor eat the plowing of the poor? Why do many get to eat it? I mean, if they're poor, shouldn't they be the ones eating the food that they plow? I mean, where's the justice in this? Um, and Naomi, you've asked, why does food grow in furrows instead of in a field? I don't have furrows in my translation, so I'm not sure uh, which one you're working from there. And how it is swept away to the lack of justice and what justice. Okay, good. So we've, we've clearly got some questions here around justice. And what we seem to see in the world is that the rich and others eat from the labor of the poor. 
I mean, the poor work the land, while people with wealth eat of that labor, yet the poor remain poor. So, you know, what's going on with that? And, and how exactly does that work? Okay, and Naomi, you said you're uh, looking at the art scroll. Let me look at that real quick on 1323 and see how they've translated that. Much food grows from the furrows of the poor. Okay, uh, I think the, the two translations um, are saying, as I understand it, a similar thing. Much food grows from the furrows of the poor, meaning the, the plowing, what they have plowed. Uh, and uh, this one says... Substance may be swept away for lack of justice. Rabbi Moskowitz translated this one as there are that are destroyed without justice. Uh, and I'm following along his particular uh, translation on this one. So, in the second half, it, it says that there are those that are destroyed without justice. And we could ask, well, why does that happen? I mean, why didn't they receive justice? Um, and yes, Naomi, furrows are small tracks of lanes between the plow. No? So Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say uh, like this, and again, I am sharing with you what I gleaned from his teaching, uh, which I certainly hope I'm carrying it over accurately from him, uh, and I'll have to take responsibility for any... Uh, any errors in that, if that occurs. He wanted to say like this, that God created free will, or this is my understanding uh, of his interpretation. God created free will. He also created the laws of nature. Now, with the combination of those two, so you've got people under the laws of nature and they've got free will, it is possible that a poor person may appear to not be receiving justice because of the laws of nature. For example, think of someone who is killed in a hurricane or some natural disaster. Now, we can't really ask a question against God's justice in that situation because God created the laws of nature. And he also created free will for people to decide what they would do and where they would go and, and that type of thing. So, if that's true, then what's the verse telling us? The commentators take several different approaches. I'd like to suggest this one. I'd like to suggest the verse is telling us that the kinds of things that are described in the verse happen when someone is only under the laws of nature. Now we've talked before about there are the laws of nature and then there's God's personal hashkacha, his personal providence. And God's personal providence intervenes in a person's life when they're on a certain level, uh, a certain level of knowledge and understanding and righteousness and wisdom. Uh, now, if you live according to God's will and are involved in learning and growth, then it's certainly possible, or it's my understanding, that it is possible to eventually pull yourself to a level where God's personal supervision uh, may be involved in your life, so you won't necessarily be under just the laws of nature. You can also have God's personal supervision 
operating in your life which can produce different results for you than just the laws of nature operating alone. So we see these kinds of phenomenon around the world and we say, gee, how can that be? You know, people will ask questions about God's justice. Many eat the plowing of the poor. Why does that happen? People, some people are destroyed without what appears to be justice. How does that happen? And the verse seems to be suggesting then that the system that's operating here is the laws of nature. And things happen under laws of, the laws of nature and God created the laws of nature. Uh, if you are swimming out in, uh, you know, generally speaking, in a riptide, um, then the riptide's going to pull you under. And it doesn't care who you are. Uh, it's just a riptide. And that's the laws of nature. Uh, so uh, the laws of nature operate, and at the same time, then there uh, is also God's personal supervision which can produce different results for you than just the laws of nature. Okay? Any questions on this verse? And Feeney336, welcome. Welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. Uh, great to have you here. Uh, we are just about to start Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. I just want to make sure there aren't any leftover questions from the last verse. Okay. And Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 reads like this. This is one you've heard before. He who spares his rod hates his child... But he who loves him disciplines him constantly. He who spares his rod hates his child, but he who loves him disciplines him constantly. I presume you have heard this. The, the often quoted thing is, spare the rod and spoil the child. Uh, uh, that old saying. But the verse here is, he who spares his rod hates his child, but he who loves him disciplines him constantly. Now, the question is... What are the questions we would want to ask around this verse in order to understand it? That's our very first step. Before we jump to trying to explain what it means, let's get all the questions on the table. Any thoughts about questions around this verse? Okay, Naomi, good question. Why, why is it uh, the child and not others? Um, Okay, good question. Any others? So, uh, Naomi, you've uh, asked why child and not others. I think in this case, this particular verse seems to be talking about parenting. Uh, so it's focused on the child uh, because uh, there's usually a parent figure involved who is in an authority or position of raising that child and so has a choice uh, about how to discipline them. Um, so this verse is often quoted, but I would suggest many times misunderstood. If you hold that discipline is physical, you can learn the verse literally. I mean, a person that doesn't, you know, 
spares his rod, meaning to hit his son or, or daughter, hates him. If not, you can learn it metaphorically. So there's a couple of different ways to uh, learn the verse. Now, I would also ask, why does it say hate? He who spares his rod, why, why does someone who spares his rod hate his child? And Rabbi Moskowitz suggests three possibilities. First one is, if the child constantly does something wrong and you have to punish him, but you have an internal conflict about punishing, that can lead to a feeling of hatred. And the hatred comes about because you don't want to have to do it. So you hate the child because the child brings up that conflict in you. The child is doing something wrong, you need to punish him, you don't want to have to face that confrontation. And so the sheer fact that the child is bringing up that conflict in you makes you hate them. So that's one possibility of why you might hate the child. Second possibility he suggests is the lack of punishment becomes an act of hatred. <coughs> like you, you literally are um, uh, executing, if you will, an act of hatred by not punishing the child. And the third possibility is I think more of myself than of you. In other words, my pain that I'm in conflict about punishing you takes over the decision about punishing you. So my needs come before your needs. And he points out that this is the Malbum's interpretation. Now the second half says, he who loves him disciplines him constantly. Why does someone who loves him discipline him constantly? And what does it mean to discipline? Let me pause here and ask you to think about that for just a minute. What does it mean to discipline a child? Okay, Eva, you've said correction. Okay. Any other thoughts? Following the right path? Okay, thank you, Naomi. So let's think about our study of Proverbs. What is the desired state that we talk about constantly in our learning in the book of Proverbs? It's to be involved in the world of ideas, the world of reality, the world of analyzing situations, the world of anticipating and acting in accordance with consequences. So if that's the desired state, then wouldn't we want to train a child in that so it will become second nature to him? I mean, we want him to grow up in that. And how would we do that? By, by applying the concept of consequences to him constantly. Now, I'll suggest when the verse says disciplines him constantly, it's not, we tend to think of discipline sometimes, at least in, I think in U.S. society, as almost synonymous with punishment. Well, I'm going to go discipline my child, which means basically I'm going to go spank him or I'm going to go take away privileges or I'm going to go do something or whatever. But I'm going to suggest that you wouldn't want to do that constantly. I mean, gosh, if you think about uh, what would it be like if you, um, you know, you hit a kid all the time, you spanked him all the time, you were constantly taking away privileges. 
I mean, that would be so frustrating and negative for the child that the child sooner or later would just, you know, numb out or collapse under that or rebel. So when the verse says constantly, it seems like it's got to mean something that is practical that you can do constantly. So I would suggest that that has to do with teaching him to analyze situations and be involved in the world of consequences and reality. And importantly, at his level, in a way that he can understand. I can understand, you know, we can understand as adults a complex idea, but a seven-year-old can't understand that necessarily. But what they can understand is, if you don't do your chores, you cannot go out to play. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, uh, if you get your chores done, the consequence is you can go out to play. If you don't get your chores done, the consequence is you cannot go out to play. I'm, as the parent, emotionally uninvested. What I'm setting up is a situation of consequences. So that if the child doesn't do their chores, I don't get angry and upset and yell at them. I simply say, and what are the consequences of not doing your chores that we agreed on? Oh, you can't go out to play. Hmm, okay. So I established those, those consequences clearly with him in advance. And then if he doesn't live up or she doesn't live up to the consequences, then I just enforce the consequence that we already agreed on. Again, I'm not invested. I don't get angry at him. I just enforce consequences. And in that way, what I'm teaching him or her to do is to operate in accordance with consequences. Of course, if there are safety issues involved, I may be a little stiffer on it. I'm not going to let the kid, you know, give the, the kid the choice to run out, you know, in a, on a busy street. You know, I'll grab him and pull him back and not let him experience those consequences. But where I can, I will set up situations where he knows clearly or she knows and can understand what the consequences are and then all I do is enforce those. So they come to understand that life isn't about me as an authority figure telling them what they can and can't do. It's about them recognizing that there are consequences to various actions and then enforcing those so they realize that they're going to get those. And you know, if, they, if their kids are all out, the friends are all out playing ball, and they so want to go out and play with their friends because they haven't seen them for a week, but they didn't get their chores done, I, as a parent, might be tempted to say, oh, don't worry, go ahead and play with your friends. But I need to enforce the consequences so they recognize it's not, the, it's not me that's you know, the authority figure in charge, it's the consequences. That's the way the real world works. That's the way Hashem uh, set up the world. So I'm going to suggest that that's what King Solomon is talking about when he means to discipline him constantly. It's not about beating him up constantly, even verbally. It's about training him how to think, how to think through situations. Um, uh, when my uh, sons got to you know certain age where uh, they were able to understand consequences, uh, we would, if they wanted to do something, we would sit down and talk with them about, okay, what do you see as the pros and the cons? What are the consequences of doing this or not doing this or whatever? And help them work through it. And to the degree possible, we gave them the freedom within certain bounds of safety 
to experience the consequences of their own actions. And that trains them to think along those lines. So I'd suggest to you the verse is teaching us how to raise a child. Um, and that if you don't enforce some kind of consequence on the child, there will be a very bad result. A person that doesn't want to do that actually is, at some level, hating his child, it would seem, because they're not doing what the child needs in order to be able to grow up and be able to function in this world. But a person who loves that child will get them constantly involved in recognizing what the world is like at a level that they can understand. Okay, any questions on this verse? Eva, it looked like you had a question about consequences. Is that all clear? Okay, and Naomi, you've asked a great question. What's the cutoff age for sparing the rod for the child? Um, I think that depends on the child. Uh, it is my understanding from uh, the teaching of, of Rabbi Moskowitz and, uh, and others, if I recall, that basically the children, their intellect starts to come into play around age 13. 12 or 13, they can begin to grasp an idea uh, and a concept, and you can begin to talk about ideas of Proverbs with them, <coughs> excuse me, and they'll understand it. Now, a child may be able to grasp some of it at a younger age. Fine. Maybe there's some who take a little while longer. Uh, the, the key, I think, is to figure out, you know, how fast the child can understand that, and uh, again, um, start to invoke at an early age consequences as opposed to, um, you know, just saying, well, if you don't do that, I'll spank you. Um, I mean, you can do that, uh, and you can get a child to obey, but the problem is they'll obey because you're an authority figure, not because they're thinking through consequences in real life of what they happen to be doing. And the authority part works until the child grows up to a point where the authority is no longer there. Um, it's it's uh, uh, a, case, a classic case, say, of a father who says to his son, now don't you have any wild parties in my house? And the child doesn't have any wild parties in dad's house as long as dad is there because he's scared of dad. But once dad leaves to go on a business trip and nobody's around, well, then the authority figure's gone. I'll have all the parties I want. Because the child doesn't see any other reason for not doing that thing other than dad told me not to. So as soon as the child can start to understand that, then, uh, then I think you, you start uh, explaining those ideas to them. And, and you can start explaining consequences to a child at a relatively young age. I mean, at a, at a, you know, probably, I don't know, age five or six or seven, a child can probably understand, you know, if you don't get your chores done, uh, you know, you can't go out to play. That's the consequence. Uh, it's fairly simple and straightforward. Um, when our sons got to be around the age of 13, in fact, at, at 13, they're, you know, halakhically uh, responsible. Uh, we switched our parenting style from, uh, I guess, parent as authority to parent as coach. And uh, where we thought it was safe to do so, 
we basically would, if they wanted to go do something, we would say, well, here are the pros and here are the cons and here's our advice. The consequences are this if you do this and this if you do that, you get to choose. And you have to live with the consequences of that choice. Um, and so it, Naomi really, I think, depends on the child and how, um, how quickly they can comprehend that. And then a case of giving them you know, a little more leniency and a little more leniency uh, or a little more room and a little more room to experience the consequences of their own actions. Uh, I mean, a lot of parenting is working yourself out of a job uh, because by the time they get to be, you know, uh, at, at an adult level, they should be able to function on their own and think things through. Uh, so, and they are halakhically, you know, m boys are halakhically responsible at age 13, uh, girls at 12, as I understand it. So, uh, am I answering your question? Okay. Let's move on to Proverbs chapter 13, verse 25. 13, 25, and the verse reads, A righteous person eats to satisfy himself, but the stomach of the wicked will always be lacking. A righteous person eats to satisfy himself, but the stomach of the wicked will always be lacking. And Sharon, just to introduce you to our process, the very first thing we do when we look at a verse is rather than try to figure out immediately what it's trying to, what it's uh, saying, we first want to identify what are all the questions that we would want to ask around that verse in order to understand what it is saying. Uh, in, in the U.S. particularly, we're sort of quick to rush to answers when one of the skills of the book of Proverbs is learning to ask questions. So when you stare at that verse, what kinds of things don't make sense or seem odd or aren't clear that we would need to explain in order to understand what King Solomon is trying to tell us? A righteous person eats to satisfy himself, but the stomach of the wicked will always be lacking. Okay, Naomi, thank you. Why are souls and the stomach compared to the righteous and the wicked? Okay, good. And Feeney, and forgive me because I don't know what name to address you by, so I'm going on the basis of what I'm seeing on screen. Uh, so tell me if I should use another name, please. Uh, the wicked is never satisfied. Very good point. Very good point. And we will get into that. Uh, okay, Terry, thank you. Uh, we'll get into that in more detail here in just a second. So, these are good questions. Let me add a couple to the list. It says that a righteous person needs to satisfy himself. Well, isn't that kind of obvious? I mean, why else would a person eat? And why would King Solomon need to tell us that? And then, why will the stomach of the wicked always be lacking? I mean, they eat too, just like the righteous. So what's, what's King Solomon trying to get across? And I will suggest to you that this entire verse can be summed up in one question. Do you eat to live, or do you live to eat? The righteous person eats 
for the purpose of satisfying himself. And what does it mean to satisfy himself? I'll suggest that it's referring to the true good. The true good in life, as we're discovering in our, our study in Proverbs, the true good is the involvement in learning, in growth, in character development, in the world of ideas and truth. So the righteous person eats in order that he can satisfy himself by being involved in the world of ideas and learning. The eating for the righteous is a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. It's just a tool so that he'll have the energy to be able to sustain himself for learning and wisdom and knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't enjoy the food. Okay, I mean, he righteous person enjoys a good meal, enjoys a nice glass of wine, you know, maybe occasionally enjoys some ice cream, a piece of fruit, you know. God made food to be very delicious. But the enjoyment of food is not his main goal. His main goal is to involve himself in the world of learning. Now, another possible interpretation of the first half is that the righteous person eats to just satisfy himself physically. In other words, he sees food realistically. He doesn't have a fantasy around food. It's not the be-all and end-all for him. Uh, you know, he doesn't spend his time, you know, uh, hours and hours paging through gourmet magazines and that sort of thing. He eats just to satisfy his physical needs. By contrast, the wicked person is trying to make food something more than it is. He doesn't recognize it for what it is, but he makes it an end in itself, and he wants to satisfy something beyond the physical. He has a certain emotion, a certain fantasy around uh, food. He's trying to get all his life fulfillment through the physical pleasures. And by definition, that can't be done because that's not the nature of man. The nature of man is that he is most satisfied when he's involved in the world of learning and ideas. The physical is a means to that end. So no matter how much the wicked person eats, and no matter how good the food is, he'll always be lacking because he's trying to satisfy something through the food that can't be satisfied through food. And that's, I think, Terry, that's your point. The wicked is never satisfied. Why? Because he's searching for something that's a fantasy. He's got an emotional desire or whatever it might be, this idea of, you know, the great gourmet meal, or I got to have more food, or I got to have more riches, or more wealth, or more sex, or more whatever it is. And no matter how much of those things that he gets, it will never completely satisfy him because that's not the nature of man. The nature of man is that he is most satisfied being involved in the world of learning, the world of thought, the world of ideas, the world of analyzing consequences and reality and growing in character development. Now, so the, the food isn't going to fill that need. So in that sense, the stomach of the wicked will always be lacking. He'll never fulfill that desire. Whereas the righteous person eats to satisfy himself, but he's not eating to satisfy his stomach. He's eating as a means 
to the real end goal, which is to give himself the energy to sustain himself and be able to be involved in the world of learning and wisdom and knowledge. Okay, any questions or comments on that verse? Okay, let's move on to chapter 14, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 1. And this verse reads, With the wisdom of women they build a house, and a foolish woman with her hands destroys it. With the wisdom of women they build a house, and a foolish woman with her hands destroys it. So, any questions around that verse? What kinds of questions might we want to ask and somehow find answers to in order to understand what that verse is telling us? With the wisdom of women they build a house, and a foolish woman with her hands destroys it. So, I'll suggest kind of a, a, two questions. How does a wise woman build a house? And second, how does a foolish woman destroy it? So, according to Rabbi Moskowitz, uh, uh, and for those of you who just recently joined, he is my mentor and the man from whom I learned just about everything I know about the book of Proverbs. Uh, he's been studying it his entire career, and I've had the good fortune to study with him uh, for about the last 20 years. Um, by house, it doesn't mean the physical house, but it means home. Uh, so we're, we're not talking about how does a wise woman physically build a house, like putting the bricks up one by one, but how does she build a home? And uh, it says a foolish woman with her hands destroys it, the hands is a metaphor for how the woman runs the home. Okay, and let me pause there. Terry, you said the perfectionist would expect perfection or nothing. Very good point. And that, you're right, that can be incredibly destructive. One of the things that we we've talk about in the, in the book of Proverbs is about recognizing reality and recognizing where you are and being constantly on the path of improvement, but that you absolutely have to be realistic about where you are. None of us is perfect. I mean, we're all just working at this, trying to get better. And the whole journey here is about being involved in improvement, but you never arrive. There's no, there's no arrival in this. There's never perfection. There, I mean, uh, the, in one sense, I guess you could say the, the perfection of a human being would be that they are involved in the work of perfection. That's what we're supposed to be doing, is um, developing our, our character and working on our wisdom and knowledge. And if a person takes an all or nothing, you know, if I can't be perfect, forget it, kind of approach, they're not being realistic about themselves or the human condition, and that can be really, really destructive. In this process, you cannot skip steps. So... A person can't, uh, you know, wish themselves to be on a higher level. Um, uh, I shared this in an earlier class, I think, but one time I ran across a, a statement by Rabbi Akiva, a very famous sage, who said, He who has bread in his basket today and asks, 
what shall we eat tomorrow, is of those of little faith. And I read that and I scratched my head and I said, hmm, you know, I have bread in my basket today, meaning I got food in my house. You know, I'm, I'm not anywhere close to starving. And yet I'm concerned about tomorrow and, you know, whether I'm going to have enough to retire and planning for the future and all that. So does that mean I don't have enough faith? And I talked to Rabbi Moskowitz about that and I, I so appreciated his response. He said, look, he said, when you're referring to Rabbi Akiva here, you're talking about a guy at an incredibly high level and you aren't at that level and you can't pretend to be at that level. You have to operate from the level that you're on and be very realistic about assessing where you are and working from that point because otherwise you're trying to skip steps. You're trying to sort of pretend you're at a different level than what you are, and that's not reality, and that will never get you where you want to be. So we all have to be very realistic and accept the reality of where we are. Okay, I have trouble with these things. Uh, I'm doing okay at those things. I really stumble on those things. You know, okay, um, th th that's, that's reality, and I have to accept that and then work forward from there. And the process is for me to be engaged in that process of improvement, not beating myself up, say, because I'm not uh, perfectionistic. Um, and Eva, you've, you've quoted the Song of Solomon that says he longs for our perfection, and you're wondering what degree. I would have to go look at that verse in uh, the Song of Solomon to understand the context. Um, I mean, certainly the, the goal is to be on the path of perfection. But I'm really trying to address Terry's point about perfectionism, and I have some very personal experience with that, because I, uh, I guess you could say I'm a recovering perfectionist, uh, that you have to be real realistic with yourself uh, and not try to fool yourself into thinking that you're in a different spot. And there's a huge amount of freedom in that because it allows you to remove all kinds of burdens of you know, having to be a certain way in order to be good enough or something like that and accepting this is who I am, this is where I am at this point in my life. Now, what's my best step forward? Okay, my best step forward is to be involved in study and learning and working on my character. Uh, and some days, you know, I'll do some things that I look back on and say, yeah, that was really good. And some days I'll probably look at things and say, man, I really screwed up on that one. And then the thing to do is to sit down and figure out, okay, what happened? Why did it happen? Um, what can I do to uh, fix it uh, and, and make it better? And that's repentance. Repentance isn't about, you know, beating yourself up with guilt. It's about, you know, realizing you made a mistake feeling bad about it, doing an analysis to figure out what caused you to make the mistake, and then, uh, you know, promising not to make that mistake again. This is not all that different in some respects from what a computer programmer does. When they write a program and it makes, you know, it doesn't produce the desired result, and what do they do? They go back over the code, find out where the error is, fix the error, make a mental note not to make that error again when they write code, and then they move on. They don't sit there and beat themselves up about it. It's part of their job to find those mistakes, root them out, fix them, and move forward. And that, I would suggest to you, is 
what the Proverbs approach to life is. Okay. So let me go back uh, back to that. And Eva, I'll have to uh, I'll have to take a look at that one because I would want to read the uh, the commentators uh, on Song of Solomon and um, see what I can uh, what I can uncover on that. Um, okay. So back to with the wisdom of women they build a house and a foolish woman with her hands destroys it. So women have a more nurturing quality in general than men. So if a woman uses wisdom in addressing relationships and issues around the home, then she'll be able to build a home uh, that is create a nurturing and highly valued family life. She is probably the primary one that in the family, generally speaking, that does that. Man's usually going out, and I realize I'm making broad generalizations here, but generally speaking, men go out involved in the world, involved in earning a living, uh, bringing home the bacon, so to speak, as the saying goes, whereas the woman is nurturing the home. So if she is applying principles of wisdom in doing that, in dealing with the children, in addressing a relationship with her husband, in you know getting all the people that may be in the home uh, working together, then she builds a home. Um, and that, I'll suggest, is what the first half of the verse is getting at. With the wisdom of women, they build a house. However, if the woman is foolish, if she doesn't use wisdom in dealing with her husband, in dealing with her children, in dealing with other people who might be in the house, then she can destroy the whole atmosphere or create a horrible one and basically tear apart a household. So, a foolish woman who's not operating with wisdom runs a home in a way that destroys it, whereas a wise woman runs her home in a way that builds it up. So, the verse seems to be talking about the effects on a household of women, sorry, of wisdom versus foolishness in uh, the woman of the house. Okay. Any questions on that verse? Okay. I think we have time here for one more. Uh, and Naomi, you've mentioned, what about men in this and their role? Well, they certainly have a role. Uh, and certainly a man, you know, could destroy a house uh, and a man could build it. But I think what King Solomon is getting at here is that in terms of nurturing a household, it's the primary person that does that is usually, okay, the woman. And, but importantly, regardless, that she has the ability with, uh, by using wisdom to build the home, that is, you know, make it a nurturing and a positive place for everyone versus a foolish woman who can destroy it uh, through her, um, her lack of wisdom and knowledge uh, in dealing with certain situations. Does that uh, help explain that? Um, I don't think just because the verse 
doesn't talk about men, that it's absolving them from any responsibility in the home. Uh, it's just in this case, it's focusing on, uh, on the woman. Okay. Uh, any other questions? Okay. Proverbs 14, chapter 2. He who walks in straightness or uprightness fears God, and he who is perverse in his ways scorns him. He who walks in straightness or uprightness fears God, and he who is perverse in his ways scorns him. Any questions you can think of on that verse that we should ask before we get started? And I'll suggest some possibilities. First of all, what does it mean to walk in straightness or uprightness? And why does that person fear God? And what does it mean to fear God? And what does it mean to be perverse in his ways? And interestingly, who is the him in the second half? It says, he who is perverse in his ways scorns him. Who's the him? Okay, and Naomi, you said, what is walking uh, in uprightness? Okay, it looks like you're asking some of the same questions that I just uh, asked, and you probably couldn't type fast enough. Uh, or I was talking faster than you could type. So, with regard to the last question, who's the him in the second half? Some hold that the him is God, and some hold that it's the upright person. So, if I inserted those, we could read it as, he who walks in straightness or uprightness fears God, and he who is perverse in his ways scorns God. Or, we could read it as, he who walks in straightness or uprightness fears God, and he who is perverse in his ways scorns the one who walks in straightness or uprightness. So we'll look at both. Okay? And there are a number of interpretations on many verses, some of which differ, and some of the commentators take different approaches. And as long as the interpretation appropriately fits the verse, uh, it can be valid. So there can be more than one valid interpretation of a particular verse. So, uh, a yosher, that's a Hebrew word, is a person who is uh, straight. This is the person uh, talked about in the first half of the verse. It's, it's someone who fears God. And fearing God, in this case, has two meanings. The first is that he fears consequences, or, according to the uh, commentator of Me'iri, the emotions don't affect him. Now, there are some people who are just plain what we could call evenly keeled. Their emotions don't jerk them around. Um, they are just naturally even keeled. Stuff doesn't upset them. Uh, you may have met someone like that in your life. Uh, just stuff comes, other people around them get upset, they just don't seem to be bothered. Their emotions don't pull at them. Um, and so, uh, according to uh, Rabbi Moskowitz, 
part and parcel of being a yosher, a person of, of this type, in the first half, is that he sees the consequences of his actions. He has to see the truth. That's his desire in life. He wants to see the truth. He wants to see the consequences of his actions, even if it's painful to him. But a person who doesn't think that way, a perverse person, will scorn the Yosher. I mean, he'll look at him like he's crazy. Like, why would you want to know that? You know, they would think he's, uh, he's off his rocker. So the, in, in that sense, if we look at the second half as referring to the person in the first half, so he who's perverse in his ways scorns the upright person, that's why they're doing it. They look at the perverse person, looks at, at the upright person like he's crazy. You know, why would he want to see the truth? Why would he want to see consequences? Um, now, if we look at the use of him in the second half as being God, as being Hashem, then the second half could be interpreted such that the person who doesn't think in terms of consequences, that is, he's perverse in his ways, he's not thinking through life in terms of reality, that person is scorning God. That is, he is scorning the system of reality that God created, and by doing that, he's scorning the one who created it. So a person who is perverse in his ways, who is operating in, on the basis of fantasies and not reality, not looking at consequences, he is scorning the creator because he is basically turning his back on the world of reality that God created. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, so we will stop here for the evening. And thank you all for being here, and I hope you can join us next week. And we'll hopefully see you then. And in the meantime, have a great week.